0: listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Last week in Luke chapter 22, we looked at these disciples having this argument about who was the greatest. And then we move from there to probably the one that got all the votes, Peter and uh, Jesus then challenging him about being sifted as sweet. We go from him saying, I'm going to stand with you, Jesus. And then we went to the passage after this one last week to see Peter denying Christ and then went to John 21 and saw what Jesus did after the resurrection in calling and restoring the apostle back to himself. This morning, we're going to go back to, as Luke has already read, um, beginning in verse number 35. And Jesus is continuing to talk to his disciples, and there are three things we're going to see in the passage that we've just read over this morning. It's broken down into three paragraphs. You're like, how do you break these outlines up? We try to look at blocks of thought that are already in Scripture like anything else that you would read into paragraphs, and there are three paragraphs here. And the first paragraph we see is Jesus trying to prepare his disciples. He's trying to prepare them for what is immediately ahead of them this night when these people come to arrest Jesus and then beyond that. Um, But then secondly, not only do we see Jesus preparing them, but he immediately takes them into the Garden of Gethsemane, and they begin to pray. And Jesus challenges them to pray, and then Jesus models us, models for us not only this beautiful prayer, but we see the agony of Christ as he faces crucifixion and death for my sin and for your sin. And then finally, we see the, the power. So we, we move through the text from the, Jesus preparing the disciples to Jesus praying and challenging them to pray to the power of darkness and this period of time that the power of darkness is limited to even understanding that God and his sovereignty is over the power of darkness in his darkest and most powerful and muscle-flexing hour. And so we, first of all, want to look at the preparation. And I think it's important... Uh, that we do that because we too need to be prepared, and I'm not sure that we're as prepared as we need to be, not only uh, to live in this world but spiritually. And so, so here Jesus begins verses 35 to 38, the preparation. First of all, what we see is that Jesus wants them to. Jesus wants to prepare them. For the immediate, and his preparation for them in the immediate, I believe, is him reminding them what Isaiah 53 and verse number 12 says, when it talks about him being numbered with transgressors. Some bad things are about to happen that they cannot even begin to imagine. And so Jesus says, "All right, you, you know that this was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse number 12, "I'm going to suffer and die as a criminal." My suffering and death are necessary for your salvation. While my suffering will shock you, Jesus is saying, well, it should not shock you because I was identified a long time ago. The Messiah was going to be identified as one who would suffer between, not necessarily in the text of Isaiah, but we know that he would be identified with transgressors. And Jesus ultimately was hung on a cross between two thieves. He was, a, he was a criminal, and we've got to stop and take into account that every imaginable sin was put on Jesus. And so when he was looked at, we're looking at Jesus in this text. What's going to happen is the guy that's been preaching, the guy that's been healing, the guy that's been feeding uh, 5,000, the guy that's been walking on water, the guy that everybody's celebrating as the coming Messiah, all of a sudden a group's going to come up. They're going to they're handcuff him. They're going to they're put chains around his waist. They're going to they're put chains on his feet. They're going to put an orange suit on him, and they're going to walk him away, and he's going to be treated like a criminal until he comes back as the resurrected Christ this is your savior this guy in the orange suit this guy that has all of the guilt all of the shame all of the accusations laid on him so he wants to prepare them for the immediate some some things are going to happen I'm going to be identified as a criminal and by the way if I'm going to be identified as a criminal you're going to be identified as a criminal if I'm going to be mistreated you're going to be mistreated and we see that's exactly what happened but not only was he preparing them for the immediate, he was preparing them for the future. He, he talks to them about, now you need money bags. We, we look back at Luke chapter 10 and we're like, everybody's supposed to sell everything that they have. But all of a sudden now we come here to Luke chapter 22 and Jesus is like, you, better get, you guys better get you a bug out bag. You better be ready. And there was this conversation about a sword, but I don't think Jesus was encouraging them to go to swords.com and have Amazon send them some swords. I think he was talking about uh, probably spiritual warfare. and Luke probably in Ephesians chapter 10 verses, Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 to 20, was probably reflect, reflecting on what he understood Jesus to be saying. What is he saying here as we look at verses 35 to 38, where he tells them that you need to prepare, and you need to be willing to trade in your cloak so that you can be prepared to invest your life completely in the ministry and the life that lies ahead of you. Here's what he's saying, verses 35 to 38. Your future and the future of the church will be difficult. Your future and the future of the true church will be difficult. There will be persecution. There will be spiritual warfare. There will be physical death. It is going to be a fight. Not only that, not only is it going to be difficult, but he's saying that you will need to be prepared in the future for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the church. You, your future will require sacrifice. You're going to be required to give up everything, to give up every right down to the shirt on your back to be able to be prepared. You're giving up your cloak for a sword. You're giving up everything so that you can be prepared in order to have the weapons that you need to fight this battle. I don't think we understand that. Jesus is not promising an easy life to those that follow him. Jesus is promising a life of persecution and battle. And so he's making it clear. If you have nothing to do warfare with, get rid of everything and make sure that the one thing that you have are the weapons for warfare. And it will require sacrifice. Give all of your heart. Give all that you are, even if it costs you all of your life. Spiritual resources will be necessary and they will be readily available. The days ahead, you will not survive them. Jesus is telling them and trying to prepare them. Yet, as Jesus talks to them, quite frankly, they're like us. They're just obsessed over swords. Hey, I've got two swords here, Lord. Look at these swords. How about these? Will these do? Jesus says, it is enough. <laughs> enough of this. He's not saying, you got two swords, that's enough. Yeah, yeah, you got got your AR, that's enough. You got your Glock, that's enough. You'll be okay. He's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritual warfare. Are you ready for spiritual warfare? And so he does his best to prepare them for spiritual warfare. And even at this point, they don't get it, just like we don't get it. If everything's good in your life, if all your money's good, if all your family's good, if all your health is good, if everybody likes you at work, you're making a progression in all of your upward mobility, then you're like, why am I wasting my time listening to this? But I'm telling you, when somebody grabs the rug and it gets pulled from beneath you, or we finally transition into that phase where you've got these old people that that believe at least believe in some things that are objective and some even believe in the Bible. When they pass off the scene and then you've got a generation that's rising up that doesn't believe in anything, we're going to begin to experience some form of persecution and you're going to say, what difference does my retirement account make? What difference does it, does it make that I've accumulated all these things? And then we're going to say, oh, now I understand what Jesus was trying to prepare me for. These guys didn't understand what Jesus was trying to prepare them for. I don't think we understand what Jesus is trying to prepare us for, but there will come a time when they are awakened, just in, in the verses that we're going to read in just a few minutes, and there will come a time when we will be awakened. So we see this this preparation but then secondly and we'll spend most of our time this morning on this prayer beginning in verse number 39 And if you look at the text in verse number 39 we see it bracketed with uh, the same thought in verses 39 and 40, Jesus says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. I want to point out that they're, in the, they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where they're going to pray. The Mount of Olives was the favorite place that Jesus loved to go. And he would take his disciples to uh, the, the Mount of Olives. It was a, it was a place of fellowship. Uh, I would love to go to a place like the Mount of Olives. I, I, would, love, I would love to spend a day without my smartphone telling me what time it was all along the way I I would love to go somewhere and sit down without a start time and a stop time I would love for us to come together here this morning as the family of God and not as an appointment that you have at 10 30 this morning amen I I would love for us to come here and not worry about if the sound's too loud or um, my shirt tail is too long I'd love to get up here and not worry about whether or not the cuffs of my pants are caught on the back of my shoes. You know, we just worry about so many things. We worry about so many things, and we miss just being together as the body of Christ and experiencing what Christ intended for us to experience. And so Jesus is taking these guys. Come on, guys, let's go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's go out here to the Mount of Olives and let's go hang out because that was just a place of sweet fellowship and it was informal fellowship and it was spontaneous fellowship and unscheduled fellowship and unhurried fellowship and there was thoughtful discussion and beautiful singing and fervent prayer and on this occasion when he takes them out to the Mount of Olives and into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus teaches them on prayer You can see in verse 40, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he says the same thing in verse 46. So whatever is going on is bracketed with this idea of trying to get his disciples to understand that there is temptation that is going to come, and it is going to be powerful. It is going to be overwhelming. It is going to be life-threatening. It is going to be uh, faith-denting temptation. You're going to face a great challenge. And when you face that challenge, it is going to be a threat to your soul. And you can't be like Peter who said, Lord, I'm going to go with you to the end. I'll never forsake you. He said, no, 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 no. The temptation that's coming your way can only be responded to with prayer. With prayer. You don't just back up and regroup. You better get a hold of God in prayer, powerful temptation is coming your way. Every one of us faces temptation. Every one of us faces temptation. Uh, we said Wednesday night as our students gathered and we we talked about um, recovering the sacred in uh, a, a, a perverse world. Or a, I even forgot what I called it. Uh, Having, having memory issues, so forgive me. But here's what we said, John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Here's here's a, an axiom that we repeat often here at South Point. Evil is always hunting. Satan is always after you. He is always after you. He is always hunting you. He's always looking for a way in. He's always throwing something in front of you. He's always throwing the spikes out in front of you and wants to flatten your tires and he wants to ruin your life. Evil is always hunting now here's the problem most of us are just clicking along down the road of life and we're not even aware of what's going on inside of us or around us and we're not even aware that we are being tempted and we're being drug around like a fish with a hook in its jaw and satan will hook us and then he'll let us go and let us run and let let the line go out and then all of a sudden we'll feel a pull and he's got us and that's the way he operates he's always hunting He comes to steal. He comes to kill. He comes to destroy. And that ought to awaken us to the need to pray in the the face of the inevitability of temptation that is going to come to our lives. Every one of us in this room, temptation is assaulting us this morning. And we need to Be curious about it. We need to be awakened to it. We need to filter all that we see with our temptation test. What am I being tempted by? What what, what am I being tempted to do? What am I being tempted to neglect? What am I being tempted to forget? What am I being tempted to believe? What am I being tempted to substitute for Christ? What am I being tempted? What is Satan using to draw me into and why? And what is it in him drawing me away from Christ? What is it that he is trying to substitute and tell me that I can be satisfied by something that isn't Christ? Satan is appealing to the desires of our hearts with the lie that he can satisfy them. That is temptation. And Jesus is saying that your only hope in the middle of this imminent and life-threatening experience, this life-threatening temptation is to pray. And he makes it clear as he models his prayer for us that, that it's urgent that you pray. It's urgent that you pray immediately. He's communicating with them. Stuff is happening right now. It's urgent that you pray fervently. It's urgent that you pray earnestly. It's urgent that you pray agonizingly. Again, we see all of this in the text. It's urgent that you don't pray for results like a pragmatist has anybody ever been discouraged in praying because you didn't feel like god was here in your prayer anybody besides me has anybody ever been discouraged in praying because you were asking for certain things to be done and those those things get didn't get done and all of a sudden there's a voice in your head that says if when you pray things that you pray for don't get done then why are you praying and then satan says because there's something wrong with you number one or god doesn't care But our prayer shouldn't be a prayer for results. He didn't say pray for results. He's he's like, temptation is coming. You better pray. Don't pray like someone who's in it with God for the fringe benefits. It's urgent that when you pray, you submit to his will over and against your own will. Not my will, but thine be done in your deepest pain, in your darkest mystery, when you're all alone with no hope, when you're being persecuted, when you're suffering unbearably, he says, pray, pray. Pray with a sense of dependency. And when we feel like we are dependent upon Christ, that is when we pray more fervently. So the the garden of Gethsemane, as they are there, is a place of teaching and instruction secondly the garden of gethsemane is a place of isolation because we see jesus leading his disciples there jesus telling them to pray but then he withdraws from them about a stone's throw and kneels down himself and begins to pray and we see that jesus praying in gethsemane is a place of isolation jesus is alone jesus knew he had to face the cross alone Jesus knew he had to bear the sin of the world alone. I want you to think about Jesus and his aloneness. I don't think any of us was created. I'm quite quite sure the only thing that was not good in the Garden of Eden, the perfect place, was that man was alone, and and it's not good for man to be alone. But here we find Jesus Christ, our our Lord and Savior, alone. And I want you to think about how he is alone. First of all, he is alone um, relationally. He is alone relationally. He has, he has been pouring his heart out to his closest friends, these 12 guys that he chose to travel with him for three years. They've seen him do everything. They ought to be riveted to uh, every move that he makes. They're, they ought to be hanging on every word that he speaks, but they just don't get it. They're worried about, uh, uh, they're worried about being Jason born with a sword. They just don't get it. Jesus is alone Relationally, Secondly, Jesus is alone religiously and universally. Think about the people that are coming to get him. These are the religious leaders. These are the institutional religious intelligentsia of the world. If you wanted to go and find the most spiritual man on the face of the planet, you would go get these people that are isolating and persecuting Jesus and going to take him captive. What in the world is happening? We've got to understand in this moment that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Is alone that all of redemptive history points to him. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Immediately after the fall, there is one who is coming that is going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. We can move forward to the Passover in Exodus 12, and we can see that there is a lamb whose blood is placed on the doorpost we can look at all of the covenants throughout the old testament we can look at the building of the tabernacle in every prophecy hundreds of prophecies that point to christ we can can look at the sacrificial system where an animal is killed as as a substitute for those who have sinned and dies in their place we can look at the wise men who come on the scene we can look at the city of bethlehem where jesus was born and the star and uh, we can look at messiah as he comes in his miracles and they say this is the Christ and here is the Redeemer, but all of a sudden now the Savior of the world is alone. He is alone in Gethsemane. And just a couple of, of passages. First of all, um, John chapter 1 over a couple of pages for me. John chapter 1 and verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's Jesus. Jesus is the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Can, can you just imagine the profundity of that? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus was alone. Now, there's... there's good news but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God you don't have to be in any of these previous categories there's a new way and I would plead with you to come to christ this morning i want to i want to go to colossians 1 and verse 15 i want you to understand who this man is here in the garden of gethsemane i want you to understand just how significant he is i want you to understand that you can't breathe in or out that your eyeballs couldn't see and your ears couldn't hear and you could not put one foot in front of another or raise a finger to scratch your nose were it not for him and he's alone He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Did you get that? Do you realize that the cells in your body, that that the covering of skin on your body, it would literally fly apart. Everything would be flying around. It's just disconcerted matter were it not for Christ holding everything together. You look and you look to the left with both of your eyes and you look to the right with both of your eyes and, and occasionally somebody will just make their eyes go in different directions. All of that holds together because Jesus Christ is the one that's holding everything together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. But here he is alone. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ is alone. He is alone. But then we see in the text that Jesus is suffering. The word used in the text is, is agony. He withdrew from them a stone strove, knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony... He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. What's going on here? I'd like to, again, just take a little bit more time and help us understand the suffering of Jesus. Jesus was isolated, but Jesus was also in this place of suffering, and Gethsemane was a place of suffering. The word agony in this text is defined as bitter striving of a fierce conflict. It is deep and extreme distress the first thing that we see in the text here's what's happening there is the the battle of the wills the battle of the wills or at least the challenge of the wills or the appeal to the wills and i I want to talk about that for a minute so that we can understand exactly what's going on In this struggle and agony, we will get deep insight into the heart and nature of Christ and into the heart of his relationship with the the Father and into the the heart of why he has come. We, we, We see the will of the Father and the will of the Son. We see the will of the Father and the will of the Son. And the will of the Son saying, Father, I'm appealing to your will. Is there any other way? Is there any other way besides me dying and suffering like this? What we need to understand, hold tightly to your armrest and fasten your seatbelt a little bit. Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ we see one person. But that one person has two natures. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ as fully God and fully man is never divided but only distinguished. In other words, there are times when we see this distinction between the, the, the God-man and Jesus Christ in his humanity, but they're never, they're never divided. Jesus Christ had a human will because he was fully man, and he had a divine will because he was fully God. You say, why are you taking the time to tell us all of this? I want you to understand Jesus wasn't a robot. I want you to understand Jesus was not an extraterrestrial being. I want you to understand Jesus was a human being. And I want you to understand what Jesus was experiencing and going through in his interior world when he was facing the, the, the death on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And what it was that he was facing was not just some guy coming to the end of his life, closing his eyes, and, and all of a sudden he's not breathing anymore. There's so much more to it than that. But I also want you to understand that I'm not pulling this conversation that he's having with the father out of my hat. I'm not making some things up. This whole conversation about his human will and his uh, divine will go back to AD 680 at the third council of Constantinople. Now, what are these councils about? These councils are about heresy rising up in the church. And what had happened through the years in the early church was there was this heresy about the nature of Christ. And they said, what what is Christ? Was he he human? Was he a spirit? Was he God? What was he? And so they would collect all of these bishops together um, universally around the globe. And they would pull them together. And they would have these conversations and do this deep dive into the text of Scripture. And they would come up with these conclusions about who Jesus was was, and since AD 680, this has been the conclusion, this has been the the staple of the church on the nature of Christ. We need to understand that because we see Jesus appealing to the Father, but we also see it shaking out that the will of the Father absolutely gets done, but that's how it all happened in this discussion in AD 680. With respect to the nature of Christ. With respect to to his divine nature. There is no other will than that of the Father. Understand that. With respect to his divine nature. Jesus Christ. His divine nature. There is no other will than that of the Father. They have one unified will. With respect to his human nature. In this passage. a, A distinction is made between his will. And the Father's will. In other words. Doing the Father's will was not always automatic. Jesus was not a robot. Jesus said in John 4, 34, My desire is to do the will of him who sent me. Acts 10 tells us he went about doing good, doing the Father's will. But let me, let me ask you to think about his human will. I want you to think about his humanity. Because the, the, the human will of Jesus Christ had a desire to preserve life just like you and I desire to preserve life. No one loved life more than Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. He's talking about a different quality of life. He's talking about, I think, life as we experience it now and in eternity. He said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So Jesus understood life and Jesus loved life and nobody loved life more than him. So how could it be that that how could it be his human will to suffer and be tortured in and, and, and his body and bear the full brunt of the curse of death? How could it be that Jesus would say, that's okay, I'm going to die, I'm not going to struggle with it. But we see him here in the text struggling with the thought of death. He is recoiling at the thought of death, and not only just death, but death for sin. And we need to understand that in order for us to understand the weight of our sin. And we need to understand that in order to understand the depth of his love. He was struggling internally because of his human nature. So there is this divine nature and this human nature in the God, man, Jesus Christ. We call it the hypostatic union. So the battle of the wills. Secondly, we see the uniqueness of his suffering. Again, we can't miss that. Jesus is in this agony because here is holy God in human form who understands sin like none of us understands sin. And he is going to take that sin upon himself. And so the, the differentiation between, uh, between his holiness and his understanding of sin screams so loudly. Let me, let me talk through it. This was not just any man dreading the sting of death. The suffering of Jesus was unique because he was facing the humiliating and excruciating suffering that only his death would bring. Death for sin, suffering caused by the world's imputed sin. This is so extremely unique. Why should sin bring so much suffering? We need to answer that question. Why should sin bring so much suffering? Because all sin deserves the judgment of death. All sin deserves the judgment of death. When Jesus took our sin upon himself, he became the subject of the punishment that sin deserves, which was the wrath and curse of God. He became sin for us who knew no sin. He bore our sin in his body On the tree. One writer said that his death was a death totally exposed to God's abhorrence of sin. Richard Baxter said his agony was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he, as a sacrifice, was to bear in greater pain than mere dying. In fact, this sin that he was going to suffer is called in the text a cup. It was his cup. And he's, Lord, can this cup, Father, can this cup pass for me? What do we mean by a cup? A person's cup was a person's portion. Imagine going through a serving line and you've got a cup. And as you walk through the line, if any of you ever went to camp or if any of you ever went to elementary school like I did at Forest Hills Elementary School and you walked through line and you had a tray and you had a plate and those plates had a a portion size on them and they they would put the Sloppy Joe in one place. How many of you love Sloppy Joes in elementary school? Right. Or they put the, the, the mixed vegetables in another place, and that was your portion. So we all have this cup, and that cup is, is, is our portion, and the, our portion in life is whatever God determines to give us. That is our portion. That is our cup. Our cup. I know there are allusions to the cup of wrath, and we'll consider those in a moment. That is exactly what the cup of Jesus is. It is the cup of wrath that is poured out on mankind for sin. But a cup can be positive, Psalm 23, 5. My my cup runs over. My portion runs over. But it's generally the idea of a cup is a negative connotation. It is the judgment of God. And the cup that Jesus is talking about when he says in the verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He is talking about the bitter brew of the judgment of God. That is why Jesus Christ died. He's talking about the death that would propitiate the wrath of God he 's not talking about the act of dying he 's not talking about uh, th- th- just him simply stopping breathing but he 's talking about the reason for his death and the reason for his death is sin. And it's judgment. The reason for his death is sin and it's judgment. And Jesus is going to face the tribunal of God. Jesus is going to face the inconceivable vengeance of God. Not conceptually, but literally. He's going to face the sentence. He's going to face the identification. He's going to face the guilt. He's going to face the shame. He's going to face the punishment of all of that sin in that cup. I'm a sinful human being, and when somebody sins against me, I get angry, right? Who wants to be sinned against? In fact, sometimes when I'm sinned against, I act like I'm sinless. That's what most of us do. When somebody sins against us, we're so shocked though we're perfect but Jesus Christ was perfect imagine being perfectly holy and we can't although we can imagine those times when we are in those debates debates and arguments and think that we have been sinned against and we respond as though we have never sinned but imagine being perfectly holy which none of us is and being accused of stealing you're you're a thief or you're a liar or you're a murderer or you're filled with hatred. Or you're guilty of every kind of sexual sin and abuse of the worst sort. And not only being accused, but, but actually as the sinless son of God, having that sin literally put on you. And having the shame and the guilt and the penalty for that sin placed on you. And this becomes your identity. This is you. All that the committer of the sin is due is now placed on the one who is perfect. And that is what Jesus was facing. He was facing all of our sin and paying the penalty for our sin. One writer said, the son of God's love must drink the cup of God's wrath. So he, in his agony, and his agony in Gethsemane gives us a glimpse into the price tag of Calvary. In his agony, there there would be something wrong. Please understand this if Jesus did not flinch at it. And say, Father, is there any other way? But as we read through the text, not only do we see him saying, Father, is there any other way? Can you remove this cup? But we also see as he's made that request that Jesus is literally weakened. All of this suffering was as a holy man for sinful men. so he suffered physical weakness. He suffered mental pressure. He suffered emotional anguish. He suffered extreme temptation. And if there was anything that anyone would ever want to get out of, it would be this, and quite frankly, Jesus was unable to continue. Jesus and his humanity was unable to continue, and an angel comes to make sure. Now, you would think that when an angel shows up to help you in your weakness that it would make you stronger, and everything would be better and everything would be fixed. And you get up and kind of, kind of wipe your tears and wipe the blood away and get up because now I'm stronger. But the angel came, and that is when we see the agony. And that is when he prayed more earnestly. And that is when his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was unable to continue. Someone said, how solemn it is to think that the trembling... And stainless soul of Jesus is to be cast into outer darkness for me who can barely muster mild disgust over my own sin. Fourthly, Gethsemane is a place of surrender. Gethsemane is a place of suffering, but Gethsemane is a place of surrender. Not my will, but yours be done. And I think it's interesting, and I think it's profound, and I think we need to make note of this, and I think we need to, we need to log this into our, our kind of warped uh, understanding of grace and our warped understanding of, of suffering and our warped understanding of prayer. I think we need to factor into this that when Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father when Jesus in his humanity surrendered to the will of the Father it didn't bring relief it brought more weakness and agony and suffering surrender brought outside resources so that he could suffer even more deeply and pray even more earnestly The best thing that we can do on our worst day is to surrender completely to the will of God, even if it means things are going to get worse. But then finally, fifthly, Gethsemane is a place of demonstration. I love Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Folks, listen to me. We cannot even begin to fathom what Christ was going through, but as we look at all that he suffered we've got to compare that on some scale to the depth of his love for us. If, if I am honest, I don't know that I would suffer like that for my family. If I am honest, I don't know that I would take the sins of my children on myself and be punished for them. In fact, I punish them many a time for their sins right much less take the sins of those who are rebels take the sins of those who are grotesque sinners and have their sin placed on me and so we see the depth of our lord jesus christ for us and then thirdly and finally in the text we we see jesus preparing them first of all We see Jesus praying and teaching them how to pray and challenging them to pray, going back to them after all that he has been through, telling them to rise and pray that they may not enter into temptation. And then finally we see this confrontation here at uh, the edge of the garden here in the Mount of Olives as Judas has hatched his plan and brought a crowd out. And as we read through verses 47 to 53, I want you to think about what um, writers call the the irony of situation. There is so much irony here in the text. Look at it, if you will, verse 47. So he was still, or while he was still speaking, there came a crowd. That's interesting. There came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve. Here's here's the man that's leading the crowd, Judas, one of the 12 that was with Jesus, that knew who Jesus was, that saw everything Jesus did. This man, Judas, was leading them. There's irony there. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Again, here's irony. Here is an enemy using the, the most, uh, one of the most intimate forms of fr- uh, ex- the expression of intimacy and closeness and friendship with somebody. You are really close if you're going to go up and kiss somebody. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm glad in our culture that men don't kiss men. Amen, fellas. Just just not just not into that. Fist bumps, all right, with me, a handshake, but this was something in their culture that was an expression of deep love. And so Judas is using the kiss of betrayal to identify Jesus. There is, there is just, it's so ironic that he would do that. This, these things are twisted around, they're backwards. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas. Have you thought about what you're doing? Had Judas thought about this being betrayal at this point? I don't know. Was Jesus trying to get Judas to think, Judas, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Wake up, Judas. It's probably the outpouring of God's grace even in that moment. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? We got expedited delivery of those swords from Amazon. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Some would say that that was poor swordsmanship. Some would say that somebody just ducked the wrong way. Not exactly sure what happened. Peter did that. But to go back to what we said at the beginning where Jesus is talking about the swords. And he he says in the first section, it is enough, verse 38. He cuts off the right ear. Jesus said, no more of this. My kingdom isn't going forward with with swords and and guns and military and politics. That's not my kingdom. It's a completely different kingdom. Enough of this. Stop it already. And he touched his ear and healed him. Again, what great grace. You come out after me like that, I'm just going to let you bleed to death. I'm going to be like you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I'm sorry. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him. here are the highest representatives of Jewish faith in the land. They've got this huge crowd in the middle of the night coming out with all of this force, the temple police, to arrest the the most gentle man on the face of the planet. We see the irony here. Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs, when I was with you day after day in the temple. Again, the irony of the situation. But Jesus puts it in his proper context. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. We see the crowd. We see the leader of the crowd. We see the response of the disciples And we see this concession. We see this brief interlude in history. And in this brief interlude in history, Jesus is saying, okay, this is my concession to you. I am giving you this hour. You have this hour, not a literal 60 minutes, but this this period of time. I'm giving you this limited period of time that I ultimately am in control of. You, Satan, have been assigned this limited time period. And even in this dark hour, we see a God who is in complete control. This is the time period when evil man will have his way. This is the time period of Satan's triumph. He is triumphant in Gethsemane. He is triumphant on Calvary. But praise God, the story doesn't stop there. There's good news from the graveyard, and I'll close with this and a couple of concluding thoughts of application. There's good news from the graveyard. While Satan is dancing a jig and thinks that it is not his hour, it is his century, Jesus, the Son of God, rises from the dead and defeats sin and is victorious, and he can offer to you and to me eternal life. If we would rest in the fact that that he came and lived a life that we could not live, Jesus was perfectly righteous and he fulfilled all righteousness and he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. And Jesus then, as a perfect man in this text that we have seen, died the death that you and I deserve to die in our place. It's called substitutionary atonement. And Jesus Christ satisfied propitiated the father on behalf of our sin when jesus died the father once and for all when jesus said it is finished the father once and for all was satisfied with the death of jesus christ for our sin the sacrificial system comes to an end no more sacrifice needs to be made for sin because the death of christ was sufficient to pay for sin jesus rose victorious over sin because sin had been defeated and would never need Need to be defeated again. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of the father. And he. While he's in heaven. Sends his spirit to come live in you and me. He is alive. So there's good news from the graveyard. It's all bad news up to this point. Satan and his hour. It looks like he has won, But. On the third day. He arose in victory. So what do we do? What should we walk away with this morning? The the, the true, real, biblical Christian life is a difficult and costly life. If I appeal to you to come to Christ this morning, I'm not appealing to you to come to an easier life. I'm appealing to you to come to a difficult life. I'm appealing to you to come to a life where you lay down all that you are and all that you have to follow Jesus Christ. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. I'm calling you to a life of self-denial. The Christian life is difficult and costly, and I believe this is what Jesus was telling these guys when he prepared them. It's going to get tough. It's going to cost you everything. But it is the only life worth living, and it is the only life worth dying for. You're alive right now and you're living for something and one day you're going to die. But but you were created to live in relationship and fellowship with the Father through the Son. And that is where your joy is going to be found. That is where your purpose is going to be found. That is where your peace is going to be found. And Jesus came that you might have that life. Everything else is death. Secondly, There is a clear and present danger. Evil is hunting. And the goal of the evil one is your destruction. Don't fall asleep at the wheel. Jesus is speaking. Listen up. Guys, temptation is coming. Don't fall into temptation. You will be destroyed, guys. Temptation is coming. Don't fall into temptation. You will be destroyed. What is temptation? When does temptation? It's coming all the time. Thirdly, our only hope in our time of struggle is prayer and surrender. Our only hope in our time of struggle is prayer and surrender. I don't get that. I've I've got just enough prosperity gospel in me. Now, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel if you're like, don't, don't. But I think think all of us got some prosperity gospel in us. Because when I pray... I want somebody to knock on the door with an envelope with a check in it. Thank you, Jesus. What a powerful God. But Jesus, the Son of God, prayed, submitted himself to the will of God, and more suffering came his way. Our only hope in our time of struggle is prayer and surrender. And if all we get out of our time of struggle is prayer and surrender, that's enough. That's enough. Fourthly, and I've got five. Sin is not a, a trivial matter. Sin is not a trivial matter. I, I, I think I think we have, uh, I think we have a low view of the price that Christ paid for our sin. I think we have a warped view of grace. That says, it's okay if you sin, don't worry about it. God's a gracious God. I will tell you that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. But I will also tell you that the call to the believer in Christ is to look to the cross and never trivialize sin. Sin is not a trivial matter. It is deadly. It is costly. Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection are the only way out. And then finally... We all stand in one of two gardens this morning. We all stand in one of two gardens this morning. You're either standing in the Garden of Eden where you listen to what God said and you listen to what Satan said and you believe the lie of Satan. You're standing in the Garden of Eden. You believe the lie of Satan. God comes walking through the garden. You take off running. You're running the bushes and you're living a life right now where you're trying to cover yourself with fig leaves. trying to hide. And if you're in the Garden of Eden, the Father's crying out, where are you? Mark, where are you? He's crying out to you this morning, where are you? You You don't have to stay in the Garden of Eden. You can get out of the Garden of Eden and you can come to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, You don't have to hide. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you can be set free. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you can be delivered. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you can say, not my will, but thy will be done. And find great joy in that, no matter what your circumstances are. And I want to invite you out of the Garden of Eden into the Garden of Gethsemane. (laughs)